Please take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And if I could um, have some ushers available, the, um, as you walked in this morning, at least the Sunday school, we passed out these sheets right here. Did anybody not get a sheet with uh, this hymn that I'd like to reference but at the conclusion of our service? If you could uh, slip up your hand and the ushers will be happy to, uh, to bring one to you. Second Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to uh, pause in our series on uh, church membership here for this week. Um, Labor Day weekend is not known for having real strong uh, attendance. Only the elector here this morning, uh, so it's good to, good to be with you guys. Um, we'll resume uh, in the weeks to come in that series, uh, but want to just uh, zoom in on uh, this passage here in Second Corinthians chapter 12, and let's read this, um, read this together, the first 10 verses, and then we'll look to the Lord in prayer. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I entreated or pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then... I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're in desperate need of the clarity of Scripture this morning, and um, so we would ask for your help to bring this passage to bear on the many uh, challenging circumstances that we may currently face or may face in the days to come. We will not escape trials as followers of you. And so we need to be keenly aware of how to, to live faithful to you in the midst of trials and understand, at least in part, your purposes in, in trials. And 
So help us, help, help this passage to open our eyes and enlighten us to the, to the truth uh, so that we might be uh, well-informed, obedient believers who walk in a way that pleases you. We thank you for our time together and ask your help in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this passage here in uh, 2 Corinthians 12 has been, uh, for me, an extremely helpful and encouraging passage uh, over the last few years. And uh, so it's a joy to, to study it. It's one of those passages where, I mean, I don't think I can do justice in preaching it to how rich and beautiful it actually is. So we'll I just hope that the Lord helps us this morning to really understand the beauty of, of what we find in this text. It's a familiar passage of Paul's thorn in the flesh. Probably most of us are familiar with this, with this text. Uh, but it's a helpful passage because it, it allows us a window into seeing how Paul thinks about trials and how he responds to trials. And it's helpful for us because we all face, are facing, or will face trials in this life. It's been said that there are two certainties in life, death and taxes, uh, but I think we could add trials to that list of certainties. You remember that the Apostle Paul, as he finished his first missionary journey, uh, went back through these churches in Galatia and was seeking to strengthen, strengthen them in the Lord, and they raised up elders in these churches, and then the one thing that Luke quotes that Paul and Barnabas told these young churches was this. They said to them that through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. That as a follower of Jesus Christ, there are going to be trials and tribulations, and that this is to be expected on the journey of of following our Lord. Now, if we're not prepared for this reality, then I think we'll be surprised when it happens, and we'll possibly look for opportunities to escape the trial rather than be faithful underneath the trial and seek to learn what God has for us as he's ordained the particular trials in our lives. And so in that sense, I think this message is, is helpful because it, it, it shows us not how to escape trials, but it shows us how we might be faithful and it shows us the purposes of God in giving trials in our lives. And in that sense, it's, this is one of those messages that yeah, it might be helpful for today, but it also is helpful for tomorrow because it's one of those lessons we need to learn uh, today so that we're prepared when trials uh, and ca- uh, come across our path tomorrow. So this passage is also helpful, as I said, because many may be experiencing trials even in this, in this moment. Um, as, as a pastor, you, in, as you interact with members on a regular basis, uh, you become keenly aware of the, the numerous burdens that, that people face. And so I know within our assembly this morning, there are, there are burdens and challenges carried by each one of us. As Alistair Begley gives the image so helpfully, we're, we're, we're like a bunch of people walking through life with our wheelbarrows too full, uh, just trying to keep them upright and, and hold everything together. And I like that image because as much as we try to portray everything is going well in life, uh, that is really... <laughs> really us, uh, with our wheelbarrows too full. And so this passage, we're going to see that God has a purpose in the trials that he ordains in our lives. And so when life is too difficult to handle, we see that God's grace and strength uh, 
uses those opportunities to shine through in tremendous ways. The verses we're going to look at closer this morning are verses 7 through 10, uh, but we'll need to understand the context in order to understand this passage uh, passage in, in a better way. So let's start with a, a broader context in this, in this of, of, of the book, okay? And begin with this question, why was this letter written in the first place? Well, there seems to have been a falling out between Paul and the Corinthians. And this is evident throughout this letter that there is something of a strained relationship between them. And that's understandable because in Paul's previous letter of 1 Corinthians, it was a stern rebuke of their numerous sins. There was disunity in their congregation. There was the toleration of immorality. There was the abuse of the Lord's table. There was the abuse of spiritual gifts. There was the doubt of the resurrection. And Paul writes a, a strong letter to rebuke and call back uh, this church to, to faithfulness. And probably many within the congregation may not have appreciated the things that Paul had to say. Who among us likes to receive a rebuke, let alone a stern rebuke? And there seems to be, in this letter, a turning away of the Corinthians from following after Paul and the gospel he preached. And there seems to be a following after this group of self-proclaimed apostles who appeared more impressive and more eloquent than, eloquent than, than Paul appeared. In this letter, we're going to see that they are referred to as super apostles by the Apostle Paul, and it seems that they're, they're following after, after them. So Paul writes this letter really for two reasons. Number one, to rescue the Corinthians from being deceived, and he writes it to defend his own apostolic ministry. Now, where do we see this in the letter? We'll just scroll back a couple pages to chapter 10. Scroll, I'm just assuming you're using an electronic device. Turn back a, a couple of pages to, uh, I didn't think you had an actual scroll with you, all right? That's not, that's not what I was thinking, all right? So turn back to chapter 10, and you see in, in verse 10, we start to, to understand something of what's going on in this context. In verse 10, he says, For they say, and this is the, the individuals who are opposing Paul, these super apostles, they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. In other words, yeah, okay, the Apostle Paul, he writes a, a mean letter. He writes a weighty letter. But let's be honest, the Apostle Paul's not that impressive of an individual. And, and we, like the Corinthians, we want to follow impressive individuals. And so these super apostles are, are put on display and, and the Corinthians are, are following after them. Turn over to chapter 11, verses 2 through 6, and we, we understand more of the context of what's taking place. Paul says in verse 2, he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and proclaims, or if you receive a different spirit, sorry, proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with and, and, and readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. 
Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Right? So Paul's concern is that in the same way that Eve was deceived by these uh, or Eve was deceived by Satan, that these individuals uh, in the Corinthian church were deceived by the super apostles. He goes on to one more passage in chapter 11, verses 12 to 15, and he, and he gives this clarity as to who these individuals are, are or what they're like. He says, and, and what am I doing? I will continue to, what I'm doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond with their deeds. So these individuals that, that the Corinthians are following, Paul now twice compares them to Satan in their deception and in their disguising themselves as servants of righteousness. And so Paul's writing this letter to rescue the Corinthians from this deception and to defend his own apostolic ministry, which was being under uh, attack. Now this brings us now to the immediate context of chapter 12, where Paul now is defending his ministry against these accusations of the super-apostles. The super-apostles were boasting of their spiritual experiences and their own impressive nature. And now Paul is forced to boast a little bit himself about his own spiritual experiences. He doesn't want to engage in this kind of boasting, but he feels it necessary given the current circumstance. So look at verse number 1 of chapter 12. He says, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. So as Paul is boasting about his ministry experiences, he zooms in and on this phrase in verse 1 on visions and revelations that he has experienced. He starts to talk about one particular revelation he received, but he tells about it as if it happened to another person. So look at verse 2. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. So he starts to talk about this, but he refers to it as if it happened to a different person. Now, why he refers to it as if it happened to a different person is not clear. Perhaps he wants to distance himself from this experience. Uh, Perhaps he didn't want to be seen as being conceited. We don't know. But it is clear, once you get down to verse 7, that this is Paul himself is the one who received this revelation 14 years ago. Now, visions and revelations were, were common in the New Testament, especially for the Apostle Paul. Uh, he received one, you remember, on the road to Damascus. Um, he received a, a, a vision on the, the, the call to Macedonia to go over there and serve. The Apostle Paul served, or received a, a vision uh, to encourage him to stay and be faithful in Corinth and continue to do the work. Uh, but here... The Apostle Paul focuses on one particular vision or revelation he experienced 14 years ago. And in this revelation, we see in verse 3 that he was ushered into the third heaven. Or in verse 3, it's called 
paradise, making it clear that this is where God is. In this revelation, Paul says twice he doesn't know whether it was in the body or out of the body. Only God knows that. And according to verse 4, he heard things that now may not be uttered by, by Paul. This doesn't mean he didn't understand them, but he wasn't permitted to repeat the revelation that he heard and, and saw. Now, like the super apostles, Paul could have boasted in what he heard. And if he did, he would not be telling a lie. But that was not his desire, as we see in, in verse 6. Right? Just notice verse 6, he says, Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So Paul's desire is not to bring attention to himself or the unique privilege that he was granted. Now, all of this sets the table for what we want to consider in verses 7 to 10. Because when we come to verse 7, we learn that the Apostle Paul is given a thorn in the flesh. He says, he refers to it as a thorn in the flesh, and, and we need to know a, two, a few things about this thorn in the flesh. First of all, we're not told what the thorn in the flesh is. I think lots of, lots of writing has been spent trying to decide what Paul's thorn was, but it might have been a person, right? We've all had those kinds of people, right, that could be described as thorns in our flesh, okay? Maybe you're that type of person to somebody else too, okay? Uh, So it could be a person. It could have been a, a physical difficulty that the Apostle Paul had himself. It could have been some sort of weakness that that rendered Paul pretty unimpressive in the eyes of the Corinthians. So you got the super apostles who are eloquent and appear impressive. Then you've got Paul with this thorn in the flesh, whatever it is, that he's just this unimpressive individual. We don't know what it is, and it doesn't really matter for the context, okay? It was something that caused him great difficulty. Now also notice that it's described as a messenger of Satan to harass him in verse 7. Okay, he says, he says, so to keep me from boasting or be, becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of revelation, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Now, by all accounts, as you read verse 7, the natural reading is to see that this thorn in the flesh has come, in, has come from God, right? God gives him the revelation. Now, in order to keep him from being conceited, God gives him this, this thorn in the flesh. But then it's, the thorn in the flesh is said to be a messenger from Satan. So which is it? Is the thorn from, from Satan or is the thorn from God? Well, I think we need to understand it this way. So if you go back to the story of Job, you don't have to turn there, but if you think back to the story of Job, we learn that Satan is allowed to harass Job, but only to the degree that God allows it. And that's probably something of what's taking place in here. We see that this is the case in, in other parts of Paul's ministry where Satan seeks to hinder him. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says that he wanted to return to Thessalonica after much persecution. But then he says this, that Satan hindered him. Okay, obviously under the authority of God, but Satan was opposing the gospel. And now in this passage, in order to keep Paul humble... Satan is allowed to harass Paul by means of a thorn in the flesh. So Satan does have the the power and ability 
along with his demons, to cause harm and work against the servants of Christ. But we should be clear that according to Scripture, Satan has no power other than what God has allowed him to exercise. And we should add to this that while the actions of Satan are intended as evil, God is often using those, those evil acts for his good purposes in our lives. So when, when, when Paul was hindered from going to Thessalonica and proclaiming the gospel again, uh, it actually served to advance the gospel in Berea and Athens and Corinth. So God took what was an evil intent and, and overruled to use it to advance the gospel. And even in this passage here, God takes what's an evil intent on the part of Satan, and, and Paul ends up being more spiritually well-balanced and kept from being conceited, and his walk with Christ is strengthened because God, of how God uses this thorn in the flesh. So while, while man intends it or Satan intends it for evil, God intends things for good. And this is important for us because we, as we begin here in just a minute to talk about trials, even the evil things done against us can be opportunities for us to glorify God, to have our walk with him strengthened, and for some or one of God's good purposes to advance that we may have no idea what it is. So we can grow in our sanctification. We can serve God even in the midst of trials. Now, as we come to verses 7 to 10, which is the crux of our study this morning, we see five reasons that the Lord gives trials. And I want you to think this morning about a particular trial or a number of trials that, that maybe are on your mind at, at this moment, uh, that, that are a particular burden to you. And I want you to sort of apply these five reasons that we're going to see to the trial you're facing, and perhaps some of them will be more applicable than others, but I think as we unpack this text, we're going to see that these, these five reasons are very helpful for thinking through how God intends to use trials in our lives. So five reasons why the Lord gives trials. Reason number one, to keep us from developing a lofty view of ourselves, okay? To keep us from developing a lofty view of ourselves. This is the very first phrase in verse 7. Notice what he says. He says, so, okay, in light of all the vision, he says this, so, to keep me from being conceited. And then notice the last words of verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited. Okay, so it's, it's clear. The, the purpose for which God has given this thorn in the flesh to Paul is what? To keep him from being conceited. Now, if you think about it, the opportunity that Paul had in receiving this vision in the third heaven was a staggering and unique opportunity, an incredibly special opportunity. So of all the people that the Lord of the universe, the creator of all things, chooses to, to participate in this revelation, it's the Apostle Paul. So imagine, like, of all the people in the world, God singles you out to usher you into heaven that, that you can see and hear things that no other human being is able to, to see. 
Well, we would think the natural response could be one of conceit. Like, man, of all the people, (laughs) God chose me. He could have chosen billions and billions of other people, but no, he chose me. And so, so we could see how the natural response to a situation like this would be one of conceit. I must be pretty special in the sight of God to experience this. The spiritual response, though, would be one of humility. Much like Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6, when he sees the Lord high and lifted up, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, in light of Isaiah's vision, he came away with an accurate assessment of himself. Man, am I sinful. And are the people around me sinful? Now, there's no indication that Paul's response was conceit or pride. But it does seem that just in case, the Lord gives Paul this thorn in the flesh to protect him against a lofty assessment of, of himself. I'm pretty confident that you and I could not have handled such an experience that the Apostle Paul had without being overcome by conceit, that is. How do I know this? Because we already are so prone to taking the smallest successes, the smallest accomplishments, the the privileges, and even the gifts, and to somehow turn them into a conceited view of ourselves. Okay, this has become, it's second nature to us. Uh, when, when, when we do this in life. So allow me to share a, a personal example of, of this. And this would be embarrassing to even share if, if it weren't for the fact that you guys are just like me and would probably have the same kind of experience, right? So in February, my wife and I were visiting my parents down in Myrtle Beach. It was just the two of us, and we flew down. And on this particular trip, the situation and circumstances demanded that we rent a car, And so in this case, and as in many cases, a pickup truck is often cheaper than even like a mid-sized car because not a lot of people want a pickup truck. Well, in this case, it was like, that was fine with us, so we rented a pickup truck. And so they gave us this brand new Jeep Gladiator, right? If you don't know what that is, it's the Jeep that has the pickup behind it. And so the roof, we could even take the roof off. And so we went down to Charleston, and we're riding uh, around in Charleston, you know, with this Jeep Gladiator with the roof off. And it was pretty cool. We had a, had a nice time doing that. But in my mind, I'm having this discussion, right? So uh, I'm, in my, one part of my mind, I'm thinking, I bet people are looking at us, and they're thinking, these people from Texas, which is what the license plate said, right? <laughs> these people from Texas... They must be pretty, that's pretty cool them just to get to ride around in this, in this Jeep. Then the other part of my mind, I'm thinking, that's dumb. This is not even mine. Nor could I even, could I even afford this Jeep. And if I could afford it, it wouldn't make me any cooler or any better to have this Jeep. But something as small as a rental car is an opportunity to develop this lofty view of myself. Now, like I said, I don't think that, that, that you're much different from me in, in that regard. We take the smallest achievements in life and we, we turn them into a lofty view of ourselves. I mean, we become conceited about the, the quality of our job, 
about the cars we drive, about the houses we own, or how about how our kids have turned out, or they've turned out better than someone else's kids, and we develop a lofty view of ourselves, or even something like how faithful we are in serving in the local church, and we somehow become conceited about our spiritual work for Christ. And the list could honestly go on and on and on about the number of ways where we, we become puffed up, where we're prone to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And so, for this reason, the Lord brings trials into our lives to remind us that we don't have everything together, to remind us that we're not that impressive of individuals, that, and that the successes and the blessings that we do experience Well, those are from the hand of the Lord. They're not due to our own human efforts. Instead of being arrogant, we should be thankful. Now, there's a question that that intrigues me that I've thought about as I've studied this passage, and the question is this. What would your spiritual life be like if you did not have the trials you do? So, like, if everything went smoothly and everything went perfectly, what would your spiritual life be like if you didn't have trials? Well, I think we would be arrogant, self-sufficient people who had no need for God with a lofty view of who we were. And so for this reason, the Lord brings trials into our lives. So that may be why you're experiencing the trial that you're experiencing at this moment, because the Lord wants to remind you that you are not all that you're cracked up to be, but that you are a receiver of his good and kind gifts. The second reason why the Lord gives trials we find in verse 8, and that is to drive us to our knees. Okay, so he says in verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited, I've received this thorn on the flesh, and, and thorn in the flesh. And then he says in verse eight, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now you're thinking, that's it? Three times? I've pleaded way more times than the Apostle Paul, and I'm still pleading that the Lord would take my thorn in the flesh. But but notice a few things here, okay, about this this pleading three times. The word pleaded describes here not just a simple prayer, but can be used in terms of of a begging of God to remove the, the thorn. We can imagine the Apostle Paul in lengthy prayer, with tears, begging God for a change of circumstance. And the Apostle Paul is referring to three particular circumstances when he, he laid out his heart and poured out his heart before God, asking God that he would change his, his circumstances. Now, three times may have been because Christ prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane and then, and then understood things as the will of God, but it, that may be the case. But it may be that he prayed three times before the Lord answered him that, no, I'm not going to remove this thorn in the flesh. Instead, my grace is sufficient for you. Or maybe he prayed three times before he concluded that, no, this is the will of God, and I need to be content in this, and I need to to move on. So we're not sure why only three times or why three times, and then he stopped. But but regardless, there's a lesson for us to to learn here. And that's this, that, that regardless of the outcome of the trial, whether it is removed 
or whether it is sustained, when we are driven to our knees, we are exactly where we need to be. And that's where Paul was. In fact, I'm reminded of, of this phrase in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. In verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, For we are afflicted. It is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted... I'm sorry, go out of 7. Our hope for you... No, verse 8. Yes, sir. Uh, for we do not want you to be un- unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Now listen to this. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Okay, that phrase strikes me, okay? We felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. See, when God brings trials in our lives and, and, he, and, he, and he reduces us down to our knees, as I said, that's exactly where we want to be, exactly where we need to be, recognizing God's sovereignty and our dependence on him. Now, there have been circumstances and situations in life where people will say things to you or say things to me, and you you remember them in a way that they, they never escape your, your, your attention or never escape your memory. I won't forget what, what one of our members said to me once after going through a, a long and dark road. Uh, she was reflecting on her trial, and she had this to say. I don't miss the trial, but I do miss the spiritual closeness that comes from going through the trial. And perhaps you can identify with that particular statement. That trials have a way of pushing us to the Lord. And while we would not want to repeat the trial, we're thankful for the spiritual intimacy that comes in our relationship with Christ in those times. See, it's hard to maintain a close relationship with the Lord when everything's going well. Right? Self-sufficient people are not praying people. But trials have a way of driving us to our knees that would not happen otherwise. And maybe that's what the Lord is trying to teach you right now in your trial. To force you to your knees to recognize God's sovereignty and your dependence on Him. A third reason in this passage why the Lord gives trials is to show the sufficiency of His grace. We see this in verse 9. In fact, notice verses 8 and 9 together. Paul's like, I, I, I pleaded that it should leave me. But then he begins verse 9 with a contrast. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. So notice that Paul requested one thing and he received another. He asked to have a change of circumstances, and instead what he received was sustaining grace. Now, it's important to understand what this passage is talking about and this verse is talking about when it talks about grace. Because sometimes we use the, the acronym to define grace. We use this acronym, God's riches 
at Christ's expense. You've probably heard that definition of grace before, which is a, a fine definition if we're talking about saving grace. Okay? God's riches at Christ's expense to save us from our sins, and we're saved by grace. But that's not the only way that grace is used in the, in the New Testament. Sometimes, it's, if we don't have a different definition of, of, of grace or a different idea of how grace can be used, then we're not going to understand all the different uses of grace within the New Testament. So here, we have a reference not to, not to saving grace, but to sustaining grace. That promised grace of God that carries us through the, the difficulties of life. Now, John Piper has a helpful definition, description, slash poem to talk about sustaining grace. And I like what he says here. He says this. Not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain, and then in the darkness is there to sustain. Now, if you're like me, you have to like read poetry nine times just to understand what it's saying. So let me, let me unpack what he's saying in this statement. He's saying this, that God's sustaining grace does not remove us from pain or remove us from sorrow. Nor does God's sustaining grace allow us to escape the distresses of life. But he says this, it orders our trouble and pain and then in the darkness is there to sustain. And that's exactly what we have in this passage. Paul has pleaded to escape. He's pleaded to have a change of circumstances. But instead, the Lord has decided to, to order his trouble and pain. He's, he's specifically tailored this trial to the life of the Apostle Paul for his sanctification. And then in the midst of ordering it, he promises to sustain him through the entirety of the trial by his sustaining grace. So what we see from this passage is that sometimes the Lord's response to our prayers is yes, and we receive a, a change of circumstances, but other times it's no, and still other times the answer may be wait. But in those moments where, where the answer is no or the answer is wait, the Lord has a very specific purpose in giving us this trial. He has, he has ordered our trouble and pain, and he promises that his grace is sufficient to carry us through whatever trial or hardship we face. Now, often it's the case that we only see the purpose of the trials in retrospect. Like we make it all the way through, we look back, and we can see that God's grace was evident in the things that he was doing. But how much better if we could become convinced of these truths so that in the midst of the trial, we would have the eyes to see God's sustaining grace and purposes in our trials. Right? And that's a lesson we're always working to learn as believers, that in the midst of trials, how do we respond well? How do we see what God's doing? How do we see the evidences of his grace all around us? rather than only seeing them in retrospect. There's a fourth reason for why God gives trials in this passage, and it is to show himself strong through our weakness. Okay, this is the second half of verse 9. 
Not only is God's grace sufficient, but notice what else he says in verse 9. He says, for my power is perfected in weakness. And then he finishes the passage in verse 10, and Paul says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. In our day, we are drawn to impressive people. Like we are drawn to celebrities and athletes and CEOs because those are the strong people that, that, that accomplish things. And this is not a new phenomenon. This has been going on uh, in the scriptures. We, we see that in James, when, they, when the rich person comes in, they, they show favoritism to him. Even in this passage or, or in 2 Corinthians, the Corinthians are being wowed by the super apostles who are much more impressive than, than, than the apostle Paul. We tend to think sometimes that if a celebrity comes to faith in Christ, that, that just droves of people are then going to come to Christ, and it's going to lend some sort of credibility to, to the gospel. But this passage shows us that this is not how Christ or Christianity works. That it's actually through weak and feeble individuals that Christ is able to display his power. That turns everything we, we know and think upside down. And, but, but the message is clear, right? If I was to look back to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 again, in verse 26, oh man, I wrote down the wrong reference. Because there is no 2 Corinthians 1, 26. Uh, 1 Corinthians one twenty six is what I was what I was referencing. Right, he says this. He, he he's telling the Corinthians. He says, "For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise." God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus. If he's finished with verse 31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Okay, so this is... The confounding thing about Christianity is that this is how God works. He takes unimpressive, weak individuals and uses them, and they don't get the glory because they're unimpressive, weak individuals, but God gets the glory for what he is doing. And that's what's taking place here in, 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 Paul's, in Paul's defense in, in 2 Corinthians 12. He is, he is weak, he is beaten, he is cast down, he's always in affliction, he's unimpressive with this thorn in the flesh, He's prayed that the Lord removes the thing, and the Lord says, no. It's keeping you weak. And when you're weak, I get to be strong. I get to be the one who who shows myself mighty and powerful, and I receive the glory. And this is counterintuitive to, to everything we think, but this is how God works. And so Paul says, if that's the case, then I will gladly be weak if the Lord receives the credit. And, and so sometimes the Lord gives us 
trials to, to bring us to weakness, to bring us to a position of, of, of unimpressiveness. So that if we're faithful through these circumstances, we end up advancing the work of Christ more effectively and better than we ever could have if we were strong and impressive people because God works through our weaknesses. The last reason in this passage why the Lord gives trials is to produce contentment in our hearts. So look at the way the passage finishes in verse 10. Paul says, after he's received this answer from the Lord about his grace and his power, he says, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's my personal opinion that verse 10 gets lost in the shadows of verse 9. So in verse 9, everyone knows the famous phrase, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is perfected in weakness, and everybody knows and remembers that one. But few people remember verse 10, where Paul says, so then I am content with weakness, hardships, persecutions, insults, and calamities. Okay, so one of the reasons that God has brought about this hardship is that Paul would be then content in his circumstances. Now, I want to be careful to to clarify what contentment is and, and what it is not. Contentment is not a joyless resignation to the way things are. As if Paul is saying, well, there's nothing I can do about it. It is what it is, all right, where he's just resigned himself to the circumstance. And I think sometimes we, we, we get that way in the midst of trials. Trials come along. It's like, well, there's nothing I can do. It's like, okay, well, whatever. I'll just, I just, there's nothing I can do. I just have to just accept it, okay? But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about contentment, okay? Contentment is, is different. Contentment is a settled confidence in God's sovereignty, that what he has ordained for me in this moment is for my good and his glory. Okay, so you see the difference. It's not just like, well, okay, well, it is what it is. But no, this is a, a settled confidence in God's sovereignty that what he has ordained for me in this moment is for my good and his glory. And when we, when we understand God's purpose in trials, the goal is that we would come to this conclusion in our hearts. That we have this settled trust or confidence in God. That he is sovereignly ordaining our circumstances. That he specifically brought about this one for our spiritual good and for his ultimate glory. Now contentment is so important because discontentment is so dangerous. Okay, Discontentment can lead us to seek to, uh, to escape the trials without learning what God has intended in, in bringing them. Discontentment is also dangerous because it can lead to complaint against God for what he has allowed in our circumstances. And discontentment is dangerous because we start to become covetous. I wish I had something else. And so it's, it's, 
it's incredibly important in the midst of trials that we learn to accept and be content and have a settled confidence in God that he's ordered these circumstances for our good and his glory. Now, this is a lesson that the Lord has really been using to shape my own personal heart, and, and it's, it's really been through the advice of a, of a friend just, just one day in passing saying, well, you need to be content in, in, in this circumstance. And I started to then see the concept of contentment you know, pop up more and more. I started to see it more in the songs that we sing. So he leadeth me, says, Lord, I would clasp thy hand in mine, nor ever murmur nor repine. Content, whatever lot I see, since tis my God that leadeth me. I started to see it as well in whate'er my God ordains is right. Whate'er my God ordains is right, he never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path, I know he will not leave me. I take content what he has sent, his hand can turn my griefs away, and patiently I wait his day. And patiently I wait his day. So this is why the Lord allows trials, so that you and I would begin to develop a a settled confidence, a contentment in that what God has ordained is indeed right. So these are the reasons for which the Lord gives trials, to keep us from a lofty view of ourselves, to drive us to our knees in a way that ordinarily wouldn't happen to show the sufficiency of his grace, to show himself strong through our weaknesses, and to produce contentment in our hearts. And I wonder, which one of these reasons is the Lord particularly using to shape your heart? In your specific trial, which one of these reasons is the Lord using trials to drive home in in your life? Now, I've given you this, uh, this sheet of paper uh, this this song sheet. Uh, this is a very old song by John Newton. And the reason I've given it to you is, um, we could have just put it on the screen, but I gave it to you because I want you to be able to take uh, these words home to reflect on them in the, in the days to come. This is a, a very interesting hymn because it, it starts out with uh, this phrase, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, and might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face, which is a good prayer, and it seemed quite innocent by Newton to do so. But then what happens in the rest of the hymn is actually quite drastic and sobering. So he goes on to reflect in the second stanza that it was the Lord who taught him to pray like this, And he trusts that that he answers prayer. But the answers to the prayer, notice the the latter lines of the second verse, it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. What he didn't realize is when he prayed to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, that it would come in a way that almost drove him to despair. He was expecting, the third verse here, he says, I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request. In other words, I pray for this, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, and at once it happens. That was what I hoped. 
That by his love's constraining power, he would subdue my sin and give me rest, he says at the end of verse 3. But then look at verse 4. Instead, (laughs) instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Or we might say it this way. Instead, he gave me a thorn in the flesh. And he goes on to verse 5. It gets worse. Yea, more with his own hand it seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, and humbled my heart and laid me low. Okay, so he prays this prayer to grow in the grace of knowledge. He's expecting it to be answered quickly. And instead, he has brought severe trials in his life to help him grow. So he turns to the Lord in stanza six there. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy worm, referring to himself, to death? And the Lord answers. "'Tis in this way,' the Lord replied. "'I answer prayer for grace and faith.'" So it's a sobering thing. Like We've got to be really careful how we pray that we, and be careful and understand that if we pray for, for growth and the grace and knowledge of Christ that it may actually come in this way. So then the final stanza here is the words of the Lord. "'These inward trials I employ.'" from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy so that you may find your all in me. Now, I thought this hymn just sums up so perfectly what we're studying here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Okay, because what we see is the Lord using trials, burdening Paul to the point of he's pleading three times to escape these circumstances, but the Lord's like, no, I'm keeping this here to keep you humble, to drive you to your knees, to show the sufficiency of my grace and my power so that you'll be content, so that you'll find your all in me and not anything else. As you can see, I want to give you this hymn so that you could reflect on it uh, throughout this week. And I'm going to surprise Kristen. We're going to attempt to sing this uh, this morning as we...